Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's women in the academy and professions. Giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. Thank you for joining us for this special episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. Each semester, Women in the Academy and Professions hosts an online book club with content related to discipleship in our vocational lives. This past semester was spent discussing the book, The Flourishing Teacher by Dr. Christina Bieber Lake. We are delighted to share with you the finale of that book club, an interview with Christina Bieber Lake, hosted by Women in the Academy and Professions, Jasmine Obey-Sakerer. Welcome to the finale of the Fall Book Club hosted by Women in the Academy and Professions. We've had some great conversations on Christina Bieber Lake's book, The Flourishing Teacher, Vocational Renewal for a Sacred Profession. And today we are delighted to have Dr. Bieber Lake join us. Christina Bieber Lake is Clyde S. Kilby Professor of English at Wheaton College. She holds a BA in English from Princeton University and a doctorate in English from Emory University. Dr. Bieber Lake is a Flannery O'Connor scholar and is an expert in the areas of contemporary American literature, African-American literature, Southern literature, literary theory, post-humanism and, bio and biotechnology. She believes that in order to understand and live in our post-human world ethically, we need to be good readers of fiction and wrote a book about that titled Prophets of the Post-Human. American Fiction, Biotechnology, and the Ethics of Personhood. She's married to Steve, an Anglican priest, and they have one son. An interesting fact about Christina that we won't be able to Google and find out is that she lived in the Panama Canal Zone for a few years as a child when her dad served as an officer in the U.S. Air Force. Christina, thank you for being with us and welcome. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Before we talk about your book, I'd love for you to share briefly your own journey of becoming a Christian. Sure. And it's interesting that you mentioned my living in the Panama Canal Zone because I was nine years old, nine until 11 when I lived there. And I first heard the gospel in a Pioneer Girls Club, which is so interesting because Pioneer Girls started from a Wheaton student. So I felt like it was kind of going full circle when I came to work at Wheaton College many, many years after that. So that was the first time I heard the gospel. Another really important part of my ascent to it was being a part of Youth for Christ Club in Kansas City, where I mostly grew up high school. And like I said, I was a military kid, but that's where I went to high school and definitely had a really strong understanding of lordship at that point. And then along the way, lots of different steps that brought me to Anglicanism. I was raised Catholic. And so because I became a Christian through a Protestant kind of organization, I went through that kind of anti-Catholic thing for a while. And then I came back from reading Flannery O'Connor and Anglicanism is kind of the middle way that I ended up on. So that's a, that's a real nutshell version of my walk. Thank you for the nutshell. Appreciate learning a little from where, from where you're coming from. Our book clubs typically focus on vocational stewardship. What was your process of discovering that your work is an integral part of how you live out your faith? Well, you know, that's 
I don't ever remember discovering it in the sense of uh, not knowing it and then knowing it. It just seems like obvious to me that who we are as believers in Christ is necessarily linked up with the calling that we are, are trying to receive. And I have always felt called to literary studies, even though I wasn't sure that I was going to end up, you know, as a professor. I taught for a while. So I just, I just have always known that this is something that, that was for me and that working out my faith along with my vocation was just a hand-in-hand thing, if that makes sense. Yes. So integrity is really important to me, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't want to ever do anything that's not really who I am. I never want to act or speak out of falseness or inauthenticity. I just don't have a lot of truck with that. I don't have a lot of patience with that. So that could be in part because of my really great admiration for Henry David Thoreau, who's, who's that, as you can see from the book, and that's one of his main issues as a writer is just, you know, simplify your life, find out who you are and live into that. Moving on to actually getting into the content of your book. Your intent in writing The Flourishing Teacher is to help faculty thrive in academia rather than just survive. Our participants at different points in their careers and in a wide variety of disciplines have found your book to be just what they needed to flourish, as you heard a few minutes ago. When you wrote the book, there was no indication that a pandemic was on its way, and your book came out in the middle of the pandemic. But some of your insights about adjusting our expectations in the face of high impact change feel very apt. Given that faculty are teaching in the middle of a global pandemic, heightened national consciousness about race and the tensions we experienced around the presidential elections, what more would you say about adjusting expectations? Yeah, I'm really glad to get that question because as we were just kind of talking about before we started recording, I had no idea that we'd be facing yet another November that's like an early onset winter, like I write about in my November chapter, where we're facing a winter, the pandemic keeps is still out of control, and we're going to be even more shut off. We haven't experienced a pandemic with also being shut off from the outside, like through winter, and winters here are really rough. Mm -hmm. So this is definitely an early onset winter. And I just feel like it's important to constantly remind ourselves that self-compassion is key in a time like this. It's like Mm -hmm. we can sit there and say it's up here, but for to travel down here to your chest, it requires some real commitment of people that you know and talking with other friends of yours. I, I rely on my writing group for this. Whenever we're just mm-hmm. like, I spent the whole day organizing the kitchen. Is that okay? <laughs> They'll say, mm-hmm. yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, that's what I did today, if you really want to know the truth, because it's like sometimes I just can't focus for whatever reason, the way right. that I used to be able to before. And that's part of what it means to go through seasons. And this is a tough season. It's a tough season uh, mm-hmm. because of the pandemic, but it's a tough season because as you mentioned, the racial tensions and the election was exhausting. I mean, I'm glad mm-hmm. we're at the other end of that, but mm-hmm. we also have to understand that that kind of national stress <laughs> is, yeah. is our stress. Mm-hmm. And so if you are thinking you should be producing the same amount as before, you really are doing yourself a disservice and I don't know if I mentioned this in the book or not, but with my seniors, I always, I think I mentioned this in the online retreat that I do. I give them Chinese finger puzzles where you stick your fingers in the puzzle and you pull out like that. And like the more you pull, the tighter it gets. 
And so I just pass them around the room and tell them to play with them until they get stuck in it to help them to understand that pressing and just constantly like, I've got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this, just makes it worse. It makes you less able uh, to, to mm. perform the way that you would like to perform, you know? And so it seems paradoxical to actually rest and let go and get enough sleep and do real self-care exercise, that kind of stuff will make you more productive. And that's why I always link that with the Sabbath as well, because taking a weekly Sabbath is just the bare minimum of the amount of rest that you need to get, particularly in a high stress time. The other stuff will happen when it's going to happen, you know, and that there are different ways that works out. And I'd be interested in what you guys want to talk about. There, mm -hmm. there are mm -hmm. ways that it works out with your scholarship and there's ways that it works out with your teaching, but both of those areas, you still need to adjust expectations when you're in the middle of pandemic and you're on Zoom, you have to adjust expectations of the type of teaching that you're going to have and do. And I've learned a lot. I had classes this fall, and now this is really hilarious to me. Both of them were in the gym, and one of them was in the aerobics studio, okay, which is a huge room with mirrors on the wall. And I had four hybrid students and 26 students in class, which is way too big anyway for the types of classes that I teach. The acoustics were terrible. They were all <laughs> spread out six feet apart from each other. So there's a huge room where they were separated. And for a whole quad, like half the semester, I tried to manage that. And there was always somebody who couldn't hear the discussion. There's some of the students there because everyone's in masks as well, or some of the students online. And I finally just said, I can't do this. Like, we're going to go all mm -hmm. Zoom. And everybody's mm -hmm. stress went way down. The conversations were better. And that's just an example of helping them to understand that if I'm stressed out, I'm not going to do the best that I can do. And, you know, mm -hmm. we, we at least accomplished what we needed to do in terms of being together and kind of getting to know each other face-to-face uh, -face the best we could, face-to-face, -face, right? Um, yeah. So that we're not strangers on Zoom. But it's going much better now that I did that. So that's just one example of adjusting expectations and kind of letting go and teaching. Yeah, and related to that, uh, especially since you already mentioned self-care, now that professors are either teaching fully online or in some hybrid form, how can they practice hygge for themselves and also bring a sense of well-being to their students? And you started off with your example. Yes. Well, Huga, you know, I loved reading the books on Huga when I researched that part of my book. And it's just something that I was doing research for myself and just thinking about Denmark and the way they handle the darkness and the winters. Because winter is really one of the things that's very, very hard for me. I got a little bit of that seasonal affective disorder. Mm -hmm. And I've always had to kind of combat that. And what is so great about the whole concept of Huga is that you just kind of take yourself a little less seriously and you just try to kind of go toward the cozy. Americans aren't really good at going toward the cozy. Like we work way more than other nations do, like just less vacation time. Just we have a kind of a hyper sense of productivity. And unless you really understand the way that Europeans and other countries handle it, you don't even, it's this, it's this water that you're swimming in, right? You don't even recognize this kind of hyper work ethic that's constantly going on around you and then suddenly you're just like why am I doing this why am I constantly just like press 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 why don't I just sit back 
light some candles, light the fire, do, you know, not, not work every night. If you work every night, you're working too much. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really hope that some of you, you know, will hear me who are still resisting that message. You're working too much. This is your life. You know, it's one thing is you're an undergraduate and you're like, you know, doing the all-nighters so that you can finish your papers, but this is your career. This is mm. your life. And and during a pandemic, it's that much more. It's just, it's, you know, and we are just finding people with mental health crises. Oddly enough, it's not the children who are having the mental health crises. It's us. Children are doing better because they're getting more sleep and they're home with their families more often. That's why also we're doing less at all, right? So when you're constantly home with your family, like my husband and I are driving each other crazy. Really, he's driving me crazy. It's really that's He's the extrovert, I'm the introvert. Then you have to kind of figure out some new ways of being you mm. know, around each other. And I think having a lightheartedness about that is really important. Take your hands off the mower. So new ways of being where families are living together. So the next is about finding solitude. Yes. Yes. So you stress the importance of reading and affirm the work of writing and research that academics do as gifts to others. During the pandemic, many people are struggling with finding the necessary solitude for all this. What advice do you have? Yeah, that's really a tricky one because everybody's situation is totally mm. different, right? And I have routinely said that if this had happened even three years ago, even two years ago, my stress level would be much, much higher and it would not be something I could easily solve. My son is autistic and he would not have been able to work on his own the way that he can now. And I know mm. that my colleagues have younger children who are at home. and so. If that were my situation now, I know that what I would have to do is really be proactive and think about money in a different way. Think about like, I'm just going to try to find somebody to hire to, you know, babysit my children at this time that I normally wouldn't pay that expense for. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. sometimes we just, we're like, well, we really want to be responsible with money. And of course we do, but sometimes for your sanity, it's good to spend it. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's good to spend your time. Sometimes it's good to spend your money uh, mm -hmm. for for your sanity. And I think that's what I would be doing if I were in this situation mm -hmm. uh, that I could have been even just two or three years ago or five years ago. So mm -hmm. that would be one of my main bits of advice. And the other bit is just to you know try to be creative about finding some solutions to get out of the house, to get your spouse out of the house. <laughs> Because I like to be at home alone, and that's the thing that I don't usually get during this mm -hmm. pandemic time. So sometimes I have to, you know, go to the office, and nobody's around campus very much. So that's very, I can be very much alone there when I have the time mm -hmm. to do it. It's just that I prefer to work from home, though. So that's the tricky part. But it's really about intentionality, isn't it? Like you have to have the intention to say, I'm going to try to find a way to do this. I'm going to solve this problem because I need this. You know, I need this mm -hmm. space. Now, rather than me asking more questions, you probably want to ask your own. So why don't you go ahead and put your questions on the chat and I will read them out. And maybe Karen will pick a couple and read them out. I already have one question from Tess and I will read that out. Tess asks, what is one thing you would say to the person you were 10 years ago? 
That's such a great question. I love those kinds of questions. Let's see, 10 years ago. Mm, I, I would say when menopause hits, it's going to take you forever to figure out how to lose weight. Don't worry about it as much as you're going to <laughs> um, enjoy the fact that menopause hasn't hit. <laughs> I just had such a struggle with that when that happened with me. And so it's just funny. I, yeah, I wish I could have said it my point at every point along the way in the past, enjoy your health and your physique now, because it mm-hmm. doesn't get any better from here on forward. <laughs> that sounds really depressing, but I don't mean it in a depressing way. Like my friends and I, we meet and we're talking to each other, like, let's just enjoy what's going on right now because we're not mm-hmm. getting any younger. And so I, I would have told myself that back then. And then also the message of this too shall pass. I mean, because 10 years ago, I was in it with young children, you know, young son. And uh, with the autism, it was very much a struggle just to remember mm-hmm. that it's not going to be like that forever. That's that's mm-hmm. what I would have said. Mm-hmm. And that things find their way of working out. Like you just think that you're not going to be able to make certain goals. And then you realize, no, you can. It's just, it's about doing it every day, you know, kind of making a little bit progress toward it every day. And I think I've since in the last 10 years done a lot more work with daily affirmations where just I write down every day the four or five things that I want to be able to accomplish by the end of the year or the end of the month or whatever. And I just affirm them. I'm going to have, you know, this intermittent fasting thing that I'm working on right now is going to work for me or, you know, something, whatever it is that I'm working on. I've started a business sort of with uh, Christina Bieber Lake is my website and I'm doing kind of these online videos and stuff just as a way to challenge myself to do this kind of thing, to meet with people, to try to encourage them and do some coaching. And so I might write an affirmation about that, you know, I will grow in my coaching business or, you know, just something Mm -hmm. like that. I wish I had done that 10 years ago too, because then you also Mm -hmm. get the satisfaction of seeing it kind of work out. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing how, if you write down the effort, it's like writing down your goals. You're a lot more likely Mm -hmm. to achieve your goals if you write them down, where you're that much more likely if you do your affirmations daily, like you put it in front of your face. There's a kind of an accountability there and also an enjoyment of seeing them. And, And of course, I'm not just talking about affirming I'm talking about praying you know for the various things that you're working on as well thanks for that question question from Andrea I'm dealing with a lot of students with mental health issues spiking any advice for how to minister to them you know I am too we all are and just like we have to learn how to give grace to ourselves we really have to give grace to our students I'm giving more grace than ever before in terms of assignments and other stuff like that and telling them that you also struggle with that the COVID stuff is not easy for you is a good Mm -hmm. way to kind of connect with with them not to not be afraid to show that you're also not in the best supreme place either you know Mm -hmm. because they tend to think well this is this part of the COVID thing is that it's so isolating right like we're so we're separated Mm -hmm. even more from each other but just keep channels of communication open with them. I find that students are very afraid to talk with their professors, with their teachers, mm-hmm. and do everything you can to help them to know that you, you know, you're willing to chat with them. I mean, you know, if you have a lot of students, you do have to keep 
careful with your boundaries and stuff and not go overboard with that. But I do think that some students would really just appreciate being seen mm. by you and recognize that their struggle is difficult. And so I have several students who have been asking for extensions and I'm just immediately granting them because I'm just like, I don't care. You know, this is hard for everybody. Yes, you can have an extension. I'd rather have a good paper than a paper that's on time. You know, and I might not have done that before this particular stuff started happening. Adjusting expectations once again. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, it's like you got to know when they need some actual help that I'm not qualified to give, right? And how to refer them. And I wish I knew more about that and to whom to refer them. I don't know, you know, everyone's institution has their own things. We have a pretty good student care network, but it's not perfect. Cindy's question. On the topic of an early onset winter, I am struggling with not being able to see light at the end of the tunnel with this pandemic. Do you have suggestions for how to keep the faith? Yeah, you know, everybody, everybody is struggling with not being able to see the light at the end of the tunnel. And especially when the situation's spiking and and I was just reading some Illinois information about like where to travel. And I have airline tickets to go to North Carolina to be with my family. And now I'm like, am I supposed to go? Do I need to cancel the flight? You know, like I don't even, you know, and you're just like, I can't even just go to Thanksgiving without thinking about like, do I need to cancel this flight? So I totally understand that. And I would maintain that the main, main, main thing is just making sure that you have space every single day to center yourself at the very beginning of the day, center yourself. And I mentioned in my book, the Sacred Ordinary Days Planner. I think they've sold out for the academic planner, but it's such a good planner because they just, they put in front of you some scripture if you want to look at it, but it's also just blank space. What are my main priorities for the day? Being very simple and then just having a time for prayer. And I find centering in that and I write my affirmations and do some visualizations. That's also helpful. I visualize how the day is going to go. Because not seeing the light at the end of the tunnel has a lot to do with what I call chunk thinking, where it's like, when is this going to end? And you're thinking in a a large chunk, like you're thinking about December or you're thinking about January. And what really you have to do is think about today. And do you have the grace and the energy for today? And then you're like, yeah, this is not too bad. I can do today. To me, that's always the issue is, is living in the present moment. And I'm not very good at it. I just admit that I fall victim to that chunk thinking all the time, but it's particularly bad when something is so difficult as the pandemic. So do what you can to center yourself in the present moment before you begin your day. The other thing that is so important is exercise. I don't know where you all are on that, but I can't believe the difference in my own demeanor, perspective, everything, just from a little bit of exercise you know, especially the higher intensity that you can do. It just clears your head, oxygen to your brain. And that really helps a lot. Because I don't think there's any kind of answer, like, you know, some facile answer of like, oh, I'm just going to pray and God will make me feel better about it. It's just not like that. It's like, it's every day, it's a walk with a faith, right? Every day, every moment, a kind of just remembering that he is going to keep us. I mentioned in my book that I do a, a Lectio Divina, you know, with my students, which is like a divine reading of a a psalm and 
for one of my classes this fall, I chose, I usually just go through the Psalms to see how far I'm going to get before I die <laughs> or stop teaching. Psalm 121, I, I picked it out for this class that the Lord will keep you. He will keep your coming in, your going out, you know, like just to recognize that he is keeping us. And even just today, if I'm not sick with COVID and my family's like, I'm being kept, you know, and even if I did get sick, he is keeping us. You know? mm. And what does that mean? Well, it's, he's caring for us. He's, he's walking with us, you know, through this. So I just, I like to be reminded of that. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to give a chance for people to think and put out a question there on the chat and ask one of mine, meanwhile. Yeah, oh, sure, yeah, you get a <laughs> bunch of good ones. Yeah, I guess this is about teaching in general, whether pandemic or not, I guess. How can faculty develop a subject-centered class rather than a teacher-centered or student-centered class you talk a lot about? Yes, that's one of the things that I have taught multiple times to multiple cohorts at our in our campus because it's so important. The main way to create a subject-centered classroom instead of a teacher or student-centered classroom is to build community with the students, with each other, and with you, and not just take that for granted that that's going to happen. And then you have to just simply be intentional with the students and explaining everything that you're doing to try to build community and why you're doing it and explain to them the difference between a subject-centered classroom and a teacher or a student-centered classroom. Like, just don't take for granted that they even understand what that means. So I mentioned this in my retreat, my video retreat thing, but like I put up on the board, like the picture of the professor, the sage on the stage in front of the class, and then there's like zigzag lines between him and the students who are all isolated, kind of COVID-like from each other. <laughs> and then I told I, I asked them, tell me about this drawing. What do you notice about it? By the way, don't ever give information when you can ask a question. That's one of my main pieces of advice when it comes to win-win teaching. Always ask questions, right, when you can. So I'll ask them, tell me about this image. What does it tell you? And they will all say things like, the teacher is separated from the students. The students are separated from each other. There's a block in between the professor and the student, you know, and it's like this kind of model of there's this expert and then all these people who don't get a chance to engage with the subject. And then they can easily see that that's not a very good thing. And then I'll talk about student-centered stuff and What's the problem with that? And they really have a lot to say about that because they're like, I hate it when I'm in classroom and we just go off on, you know, tangents and we're not stuck on this subject. And I'm like, exactly. So subject centered. And then I give the drawing where it has the subject in the middle and all the knowers around it. And that has lines where they're all connected. All the knowers are connected with each other in the subject. This comes from Parker Palmer. And I asked them to talk about that. And they're like, oh, the teacher is one of the knowers. I'm like, yep, I am learning along with you. Yes, I know more. And yes, I'm going to be facilitating, but we are all learning together. And I learn from you. And I want to make sure that they know that, which means I have to actually show them when I do learn from them. Mm -hmm. One of the most significant things that you can ever do in a classroom is say to a student, I never thought about that before. You know, I mean, that just, that will make their week. And it's true, and, and I, I know it's not 
as easy in the sciences and things like that, but in literary studies and, and history or other, you know, humanities, there are a lot of insights that students have that their angle in, you know, when they say something, I'm like, oh my goodness, I really truly haven't thought about that before. And then I explore it with them. That's very powerful. And that shows that the subject is at the center and that I'm still learning from the subject and we're learning from it um, mm -hmm. and from each other as we learn from it. Thanks, Christina. And there's a question from Tess. What advice do you have for someone who wants to be an advocate for our faith, specifically at a university where not many, if any people uh, you are in contact with most, do not believe the same things or make subtle comments that are somewhat hostile or generalize the faith? <laughs> yeah, you know, I've been at Wheaton for 22 years where that's not an issue, but I did go to secular uh, university where I had active hostility and the English field is a place mm -hmm. of active mm -hmm. hostility. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have a really long story, but I, I will give you the very short gist of it. I was kicked out of a study group for the comprehensives because one of the women in it was a lesbian and thought that in the heat of the summer, our, our ideological differences would come out. And we wouldn't be able to work together. So they kicked me out of the study group. Didn't bother to ask me what I thought about homosexuality or have a conversation about anything. It was just they constructed me into a kind of a Newt Gingrich type figure and didn't want to have anything to do with me. It was a really challenging time. So it's really hard. That is a hard question. I think you have to kind of fly under the radar in ways where you're just constantly thinking about being the person that they would come to when the crisis hits and you're the one who has been the solid, loving, you know, like that's the, the only way that I know how to be advocate for the faith with academics. Because mm -hmm. this line of work, people are just so cynical and they're they're full of anger. And there's this book by a woman who was a, a serious academic, and I, I can't remember the name of the book. Oh, Rosario Butterfield. Thank you. Yes, yes. I haven't read it, but I'd like to. That seems like it would be because she knows about that hard-crusted cynicism that comes from the academic life and the kind of sets of stories that you are told as an academic. That's my understanding about that book. Mm -hmm. We have a couple more questions that came in. I'm going to read Emily's first. As a single pre-tenure faculty member, I often have a really hard time drawing any type of line between my vocation as a teacher scholar and anything outside of this work, like maybe a family someday. Your book is full of great tips. Do you have any additional thoughts? Okay, I'm really glad that you asked that. That's one of my most important issues. <laughs> that's one of the things that I think is most important for every single teacher to get because there is no amount of work, like there's no limit to the amount of work that you could do, right? Especially if you're a caring teacher and you're a devoted teacher, there's always something else that you could improve on, right? It's not like you're going to go and mow one lawn and then you're done for the day. Nothing in the academic life, nothing in the teacher's life, high school or any teacher is like that. So that means that you have to decide that this is not going to be your life and that you're going to put a line under your day. And that means that you have to do things actively 
that are going to be things that other people are not going to accept. One of the things that other people do not easily accept from me is that I just don't answer my email right on time. I don't open my email in the afternoons. I only, or in the mornings, I only open it in the afternoons. And people get upset about that. I don't care. I just don't care. You know, it's it's like the, and I'm not going to hurry to answer your email on the weekend. And so people eventually learn, like you know, Dr. Beaver is not somebody who like opens her email on the weekend. And people get upset about it. But I'm like, this is my life. This is not, you know, I don't want my entire existence to be just constantly looking at email. And email is one of those really those important places where you can kind of see, have you actually drawn those, those boundary lines. But that means you need to have a strategy for dealing with email. And I tried to suggest some strategies in my book. I think it's in the October chapter. So the main tip is just deciding to do it, like to really and really committing to it. And in the age of social media and all the distractions and stuff, it's that much harder because you can have your email right on your phone. I don't have my email on my phone. I mean, I do because sometimes I have to check it in weird places, but it's buried. I don't have the notifications on. So I have to like decide. So I'm not in the habit of using my phone for email and that's on purpose so that I, I separate away those things. I was also, I was single for just FYI for uh, the first six years of my career. I was, I wasn't married until I was 35. So I had a chance to see it on kind of both ends of that. And there's a lot of difficulty with being a single faculty member, particularly a woman, because mm-hmm. uh, there's all these expectations that you can just be on every flying committee and every, you know, and you just have to learn how to say no. And just because you're single doesn't mean you're available 100% of the time. <laughs> it just, nice. just doesn't. And, uh, you know, I really like Gretchen Rubin's the, the four tendencies thing that I that I mentioned in the book. The four tendencies being the obliger, the questioner, the upholder, and the rebel, and knowing which one of those you are. My friend who's the obliger really has to learn to not be an obliger anymore, but she's struggling with that. And she... Mm-hmm just is constantly saying yes, because she feels guilty. It's kind of like, well, they asked me who else is going to do it. I should do it. No, no, no. Learn how to say no. We have Elizabeth's question. As an early career teacher, I often find myself feeling disappointed that my students don't think as deeply as I would like. Devote enough time to assignments, engage with the class activities. I've spent so much time preparing, etc. Do you have any advice for graciously meeting students where they are at while also maintaining standards and encouraging them to aim higher? Ooh, that's such a great question. That's the reason why I stopped teaching high school and started teaching college was because they did not like the things that I loved, like Walden, you know, (laughs) and they would trample all over the things that I loved. And so when I got to college, it was to teaching college, it was such a relief when I started because they actually could be encouraged and could kind of, you know, catch up with my passions. I have in the last 10 years of my teaching career spent more time teaching students how to think than I did before. Like students think that writing is the skill and thinking, I don't know what they think about thinking. They don't think about thinking. I'm like, writing is about thinking. Writing is hard because thinking is hard. And so helping them to understand what thinking really looks like, 
what having a question that doesn't have an immediate answer looks like. If I had a dollar for every conversation I've had about short paper and assignments that I do, for every time the student just really was just thinking that they should write something that they already knew before they started writing it, I would be super rich. I'm like, no, you should be writing something that you're discovering about this text because why else write it? There's no point. I, I don't need to know that you can write a five paragraph essay. I need to know that you can think. So I'm just teaching thinking if that makes sense and if that helps to answer your question. And I'm letting them know that. And you know, they rise to the challenge. And I think students really want, they want somebody to expect more from them. Yeah, there's a lot of grade grubbing going on, but if I get one compliment that I like more than any others about my teaching is sometimes students will say, she got me to do more than I thought I would, would be able to do. And I think that just comes from the passion of, of teaching why this matters, why your discipline matters, why they should care about thinking about whatever it is that you're teaching. And if you don't know that, then why are you teaching it, right? I mean, I know why I'm teaching what I'm teaching and I wanna give that to them and encourage you. The other thing I wanna say is that the questioner said something about, well, I put in all this prep and part of the answer to your question is prep less <laughs> because if you let go more, of the control over the classroom, you might be surprised by where the students will meet you. Some of my best classes were things that I wasn't, re like the example that I always give is I was teaching the souls of black folk by Du Bois. Now this is a text I've taught numerous times, but I hadn't taught it in like three years. I teach African-American literature and I hadn't taught it in like three years. Well, I always, if it's been three years, I have to reread because I just can't do a subject-centered classroom where it's all discussion-based if I don't do the reading. That's just something that I have to do. So I hadn't reread it because my child was puking in the middle of the night, right? So I was not ready for class the next day. And so I just said, creative self, I just sat back and like, okay, what do the students really need right now for maximum engagement? Like, what is me doing less? This is win-win, right? Me doing less and them doing more. That's always the way that you should think about your class. And I came up with the idea that I would put them in small groups and ask them to, in their groups, come up with the one passage from the reading for that day that they think it would be irresponsible for them, for us to not talk about, and then to be prepared to teach that passage to the rest of the class. It was amazing, right? The level of engagement was so much higher. No work on my end except to respond to the things that they came up with. And I still do things like that. Whether I'm ready for class or not, I will sometimes do that. If I feel like that's that they need to just kind of be less just passive and more active, it forces them to that. They learn a lot from each other, actually. I'm going to ask two more questions from you, Christina, before... I ask Karen to pray for all of us. What one thought would you offer to each group of academics, grad students and faculty who are just starting out, faculty in mid-career, and those close to retirement? If you could just say one thing to prioritize for each of these career points. Well, for all three, I, I would recommend my former colleagues book. He has an, an IVP academic book, and he talks about the different stages of the careers, and i just not really good with specific details. That would be a good book. Maybe I'll come up with it by the time I end, finish talking about this question. 
early, like grad school and early on, I would just say, you know, patience with the process of finding your way as a teacher and as a scholar. I think I was really anxious in my early years because I was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be writing about. What's, where's my scholarly niche? And I just thought it was always going to be like that. And I didn't realize that eventually just from working and teaching that would come to me. So I, I would just caution, just try to lower your anxiety and try to have fun with teaching and really work on the subject-centered teaching. And one of the things that I did early in my career that's really paid off a lot of dividends is that anytime I taught my main class, which is contemporary American literature, 1945 to the present, I would alternate not too many books because you don't want to keep yourself working on prep all the time, but I would alternate one or two things to keep expanding my knowledge. And then after a while, I felt like I'd done enough alternating and now I just kind of keep it the same so that I can spend most of my time on my scholarly research and less of my time on my teaching. But if you're getting bored, time to switch it up. Take out that, you know, Cormac McCarthy and put in that Marilyn Robinson or whatever it is just to keep your your mind fresh. So early in your career, that's what I would recommend. Middle in your career is when you really have to, I think, prioritize scholarship, your you know, academic people. And I think that means really learning how to say no, like particularly after you get tenure, that doesn't mean be a jerk about it, but you really do have to start protecting your time and your space more aggressively because those are the times it's kind of like what they say about retirement savings, right? Like you got to start early and kind of put that, that's like your like best time for your, for your later career, just investing in that foundational work. So I, what I did, and I was fortunate because Wheaton has this program. We have an advanced faith and learning program where you can get release time to be in a group of other scholars and work together. And anything you can do to get release time, do it, uh, would be my advice for the middle, early and middle years, actually. Because mm-hmm. I don't know, I could not have done the scholarship that I did if I didn't get that release time. So, And then later, I'm just starting to figure that out because I'm just entering the later phases here. I mean, they say that the big issue is legacy. And I feel like I am kind of transitioning into thinking about my legacy by spending more time talking about teaching by doing more of the kind of things that I try to spread what I feel like I'm good at and share with other people. You want to give more in the later, in the later years. And also, oh, this is really important. So I'm glad that you asked this question. I just in the last month or two with my writing group decided that I'm going to write my next book totally for me. Now, Flourishing Teacher was totally really for me. Okay. But I mean, my next academic book. Like, I'm not going to care whether it's scholarly enough. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm done with that. I'm just going to write the book that is in me to write. Mm -hmm. And that's, I earned the right to do that, right, by the early stuff. And now I need to do it and I need to have the courage. I need to have the courage to do it. So I've been praying and and affirming. One of my affirmations is the game-changing book that I'm supposed to write is in me right now. It's I'm on sabbatical in the spring, so part of this is preparation for my sabbatical, like, it's brewing in me right now. Where is it? Where is it going to, what's it going to be? Wow. So encouraging. So amazing. I'm so, so glad. So, so many superlatives that, and other adjectives that we want to use for all of the things that you shared, all the different things that we learned as we read your book. 
It has been very good. It has been really good. So I want to ask a closing question where you end your book exhorting us to view things in proper perspective. The pandemic reminds us that we aren't in the driver's seat and makes us all more aware of the reality of grace in the everyday. As we come to the end of our time together, would you share with us what you have discovered as grace in the ordinary and unremarkable in your own life? I love that question. And you know that I do because you read my book. And I think my answer is going to be the kitchen organization project I've done this week. <laughs> you, you know, Because it's like, this may sound like a really stupid thing, but for me to step out and just be like, you know what? I have been given this beautiful house and this the messiness in my kitchen is causing me stress. And it's just a grace to love the things that God has given you. This is why I love the um, Marie Kondo book so much, because it seems to me that what she's saying is just treasure the things that you actually treasure and let go of the things that you that you don't treasure, like enjoy, you know, because they're gifts. And if you are able to kind of take care of the things that you have it makes you feel gifted like you that God has given you an extraordinary number of things. You know, I mean, gratitude is the key to so much of every, of joy. Right. And I'm glad that I've taken the time to do this kind of organization because it makes me feel joyful and receiving those gifts from God. So don't ever like feel bad about just taking the afternoon to sit in the hammock and read or you know, clean a closet. I've got a friend who always cleans a closet whenever she's stressed out, you know, it's like, but whatever it actually makes you feel you're like, you were right here. And then you, instead you stepped back and you're like, oh, the whole picture is really not that bleak. And if I step back here, I realize this is really lovely. I have the things that I want. Like part of my book is this is thriving. Like I have mm -hmm. the things that I wanted. I have, my goodness, if you have a job, that's huge, right? Like so many people don't have jobs, especially in the humanities right now. I have a job. I have a family. I have a beautiful home. You, you can't be right here and see that. You have to be. Well, this is very delightful, Dr. Bieber Lake. Thank you very much for being with Women in the Academy and Professions tonight and talking about so many wise things. Thank you. We really appreciate it. And I would like to ask Karen to pray for you. Thank and you. Also to pray for the rest of us so that we flourish in the places that God has put us in. Let's pray. Father, the time together uh, tonight and over the last several weeks reading this book and having conversations, uh, those things have been gifts to us. And so we say thank you for that. We're especially grateful for for the gift that Christina Bieber Lake is to us through her book, the gift that she is to her students and to her colleagues, and really now to generations of students who have come uh, through her classroom, uh, through her life. And so we thank you for her influence. We thank you for uh, the gift that she has been to, uh, to them and for her willingness to share herself with us tonight. Mm -hmm. I'm so grateful for all these women on this call, for who they are, for the calls on their lives, for the institutions and the students and the families and the communities that they represent. 
Lord, would you bless each of them uh, in the places where you've called them and would you enable them to flourish? Would you enable them to know you more deeply in these days of challenge and to be used by you as the aroma of Christ in all of these places where you have them? And we would pray for Christina. Thank you for her uh, more organized kitchen and for <laughs> her uh, willingness to just step into that and to invite us into similar things in our own lives. And we pray she heads into a sabbatical with a sense that there's a book inside her that she needs to write. We bless that and we pray for that whole process for the gurgling within her for the ability for her to get the gurgling out <laughs> onto uh, paper or cyberspace or wherever it is that she does her writing. Thank you for her writing group that blesses her and calls her on to the next thing. And so we do pray for her as she considers uh, what you have next for her. So again, thank you for this time. Thank you for what a rich gift it is to us. And we ask and pray this in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Thank you again. Thank you, everyone. It was good to meet you, Christina. It's nice to meet you all. Mm -hmm. What a wonderful group. Wish you well. Thank you so much for listening in on our book club's interview with Dr. Christina Bieber-Lake author of The Flourishing Teacher. If you are interested in being part of future book clubs hosted by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions, look for more information at thewell.intervarsity.org or contact Jasmine at wap.intervarsity.org. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and information about our guests can be found on our podcast page at thewell.intervarsity.org slash podcasts. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.